perhaps the one that may be most interesting to law students, law faculty in the audience, would be Sam Scheffler from Global to the Department of Philosophy at Berkeley. Um, today, however, it's a great privilege to uh, welcome visitors from England. I'm not going to do the introduction. I'm going to leave that to my colleagues. And first, I should say some thanks. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank the Mershon Center, uh, who sponsored the Citizenship Series, and its director, Rick Herman. I want to thank uh, Dean Rogers of the Morris College of Law. Uh, but most especially, I want to thank uh, Mary Ellen McConnell, a Saxon professor of international law at uh, the Morris College. Uh, through whose good graces we've managed to uh, lure uh, Professor Lowe over here from uh, All Souls. Uh, Mary Ellen, I'll let you do the honors. I too want to uh, begin with some thanks, and those are for Professor Alan Silverman of the Department of Philosophy and the organizer of the Rashawn Center Citizenship Series. Um, he allowed the College of Law to host today's lecture, and by moving the lecture here from the Rashawn Center, he had to do a great deal more work than he usually does, and I'm grateful for him, to him for taking on that extra work. Professor Silverman has created for us the opportunity here at the Moritz College of Law to welcome to our midst one of the leading practitioners in international dispute resolution active in the world today. In the book that we use here at the college in our course on international dispute resolution, we study no fewer than three major cases in which Professor Lowe was an advocate. No other lawyer appears in more. We study the Southern Bluefin Tuna arbitration in which he represented Japan, the Mox Plant case in which he continues to represent Ireland, and we just added the International Court of Justice's advisory opinion in the legal consequences of the construction of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territory, decided on July 9, 2004. Professor Lowe represented the Palestinian Authority in that case. He's also represented the Czech Republic, Singapore, Finland, Cyprus, Malta, many other countries, as well as corporations and individuals in cases involving international law, underscoring that he truly has insights into his topic for us today, global citizenship and international law. Professor Lowe is currently the titulate professor of international law in Oxford University and a fellow of All Souls College. Before his current position, he was reader in international law at Cambridge and has also taught at Manchester and Cardiff Universities. He was a visiting professor at Duke University School of Law. He's the co-author of the books, The International Law of the Sea, which is the standard reference work on the law of the sea, as well as international dispute settlements. He's also the author of dozens and dozens of articles, most noteworthy for their really wide range of topics covering such issues as international law and the use of force, all the way to international economic law. We've been friends for more than a dozen years, so it's with particular personal pleasure that I welcome him here to the Moritz College of Law, the Ohio State University, and Columbus, Ohio, where he thought he might have to help us count provisional ballots <laughs> when he first landed here. Warren, thank you for coming. Podium yours.
for that, Mary Ellen. It's an um, interesting reflection on the gap between people's public and private lives, and I've always thought I was told as someone who's incapable of decorating without having paint all over my trousers. That's how my wife and children think of uh, I, too, in true Oscar style, should thank uh, people to begin with, and I should thank the Mershon Centre for having made the visit possible, and Mr. Silver and Professor O'Connell for uh, their great kindness inviting me over. It's a great delight to be back here and already crossing swords with some bigger with Mary Ellen over a issue or two. There are two parts of my presentation. The paper is only the first part of it, and I have to say that this paper has cost me more angst in its preparation than just about anything that I've ever done. I was on the verge yesterday of tearing up the entire thing and winging it because the issues that I want to speak about are difficult and they're difficult even to get off the ground with. And the basic issue that I'm concerned with is this. Can a state which is, for example, emitting massive pollution properly say to the rest of the world well, we're complying with our obligations under our existing treaties, we obey customary international law, and we owe you nothing else. We as a state owe you nothing. Is it ever possible for a state to say to the rest of the world, we owe you nothing? How is it that we can watch on our televisions pictures of people who've been forced from their homes, murdered, raped, starving by their tens of thousands, and do nothing. If this were happening in a suburb of Columbus, uh, or anything remotely like it were happening in a suburb of Columbus, it would be absolutely unthinkable that the authorities should not intervene to remedy the situation. And it would be astonishing if large numbers of private citizens did not give their time and their money to assist. Why is there a difference? Why is it that we allow suffering in foreign countries of a kind that would be completely unimaginable at home. For all the talk of globalization, those dying in Sudan and elsewhere are plainly not regarded as part of the community for which we have any responsibility. They appear to have no rights against us, and we appear to have no duties towards them. And that is so whether the we in that proposition refers to us as individuals, or to our governments, or to our states. But that's merely another way of describing the phenomenon, it doesn't explain it. And I'm not going to try to explain why it is that this happens, or even to argue what substantive duties we owe to those who live beyond our borders. My task is a much more modest one of explaining how international law approaches the problem, the nature of the support that the framework of international law provides for the exercise of rights and the fulfillment of duties of citizenship on the global scale, and the limitations which international law imposes upon the development of the idea of global citizenship. In the first half of my paper, I want to look at the analytical framework within which we might ask questions such as, do states owe duties to those outside their borders? And I want to argue that there are two sets of relevant distinctions. One distinguishes between the moral positions of individuals, states, and governments, and the other distinguishes between mandatory rights and duties established by law, voluntary rights and duties that are established by contract, 
backed by the law and simple moral rights and duties. And then in the second part of my paper, I want to go on and look at the framework that international law actually provides for concepts of citizenship. The central concern of citizenship, as I'm using the term, is with the role of the citizen, that is, a member of a political community, and his or her rights and duties in relation to other citizens and to the political community to which they belong. It's what we might call the public order of the community. And it's the role of every member of the community considered as a member of the community that is relevant. It's not their rights and duties as a member of a family or of an association, although those categories of rights and duties do, of course, overlap with their duties as a citizen. Equally, the rights and duties of citizens are distinct from those of humankind in general, as I shall use the term. Citizens' rights and duties are those which attach to them as individuals by virtue of the fact that their futures are, in some degree, bound together by the fate of the community of which they're a part. And that is why I think Lafayette and Jefferson, when they drafted their great revolutionary declaration in 1789, called it the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. In that declaration, they wrote that the, quote, representatives of the French people, organized as a national assembly, have determined to set forth in a solemn declaration the natural, unalienable, and sacred rights of man, in order that this declaration, being constantly before all the members of the social body, shall remind them continually of their rights and duties. And they continue to say that the exercise of the natural rights of each man has no limits except those which assure to the other members of the society the enjoyment of the same rights. These limits can only be determined by law. Well, that document seems to me to epitomize three crucial elements of citizenship. First, citizenship is rooted in a fiction fictional equality. Though citizenship was for many centuries a privilege denied to many inhabitants of states and cities. And even in the 17th century there was a widespread view that the poor simply did not count as people who had political rights. Under the constitutions of modern democratic states, citizens are treated as equal under the law regardless of what are often enormous disparities in their wealth, abilities, ancestry, and other circumstances. Rights and duties flow from the mere fact that each individual is a human being. Secondly, the rights and duties flow to a strictly limited class of human beings those who are the members of the community, the social body in question. That social body or community is usually taken in the context of discussions of citizenship to be the state, but at least as I understand it, citizenship and nationality are not the same thing. Nationals of a state may have some, but not all, of the rights of a citizen. 
everyone having the nationality of a state has, for example, the right of abode in that state. And conversely, non-nationals may have a right to reside in a state and perhaps also to vote and participate in other ways in its private and its public life. So on uh, my approach, such non-nationals living in the community would count as citizens. Citizens are people who live uh, and function in the midst of the community. Well, that points to a degree of uncertainty in the definition of who precisely has the rights and duties of a citizen. But the uncertainty is not so great that it cannot be said that the idea of citizenship is clearly tied to membership of a particular community. And furthermore, the community is one that is defined by distinguishing it from other communities. I might say, indeed, that one of the main purposes for which the idea of citizenship is used is precisely to suppress differences that might separate citizens from one another on the basis of their individual wealth, abilities, family, race, or whatever, and to build up the idea of the common membership of a community that marks itself off from all other communities. Well, that plainly makes it difficult to explain, and perhaps even to accommodate within the notion of citizenship, duties towards other states and their inhabitants. And it's that difficulty that is at the centre of my concern. The third point that emerges from the Great 1789 Declaration is that the rights and duties of citizens are determined not by the people themselves, in the way that rules of social behavior, such as speech, fashion, and so on, can emerge more or less spontaneously from the community, but rather by the government of the community acting primarily through the promulgation of laws. Now that last point requires me to qualify what I said about the fiction of equality on which citizenship is based. While it's just about plausible to maintain the view that all Individual citizens are equal because if you strip away all our possessions and pretensions, we all have roughly the same abilities and needs. It is nonetheless obvious that government is a very different matter. But more precisely, when those among us who are government officers exercise the powers which our positions give us, we have power of a wholly different order from that possessed by individuals. It is therefore necessary to distinguish between the citizen and the government sides of citizenship. Well, that distinction leads me immediately to one dimension of the complexity of citizenship. We may recoil from the idea that the government can say, in the face of appalling, remediable poverty and suffering in other countries, we owe the world nothing. Our duty is to our own citizens. But it's not obvious that it is the government that should be regarded as the possessor of the duty to act. There are at least three candidates for the location of the moral duties. Individual citizens, governments, and states. And their moral position seems to me to be different. 
There's not much that I need to say about the moral position of the individuals within the limits of the autonomy allowed to them by the law. Individuals are free to make moral choices, to dispose of their time, resources, and concerns as they wish. If there is a moral reason for acting in a particular way, individuals are at liberty to do so, subject only to their legal obligation. But the rights and duties of governments are not the same as those of individuals. This point is obvious in the domestic context, but less obvious in the international sphere. Much of the talk about humanitarian intervention, of the kind that was engaged in by NATO in Kosovo, for example, used the language of individual morality. People said that states could not stand by and watch suffering on that scale, as if it were a question of an individual standing by while an innocent victim was assaulted. But the distinct moral position of national governments in the international sphere is a complex matter. In part, it is a factor of the different capabilities for action, which entails differences in the responsibility to act. It seems to me to make no sense to say that I have a moral responsibility to do something that I am incapable of doing. I have no airports. I can't drop bombs on Kosovo or airlift grain to Sudan. Governments can do so. And that capability extends the range of their potential moral duties. It extends it obviously as a matter of fact, but the extension also has normative implications, because it may shift matters into a different frame of reference. If I enter a state to defend victims of ethnic cleansing, I may commit a crime under the local law. But if NATO forces enter for the same purpose, they may violate the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the state. My intervention does not usurp the powers of the local government. NATO does. Moreover, the power of government is regarded in all systems as being, as it were, held on trust. There is an idea that it must be used for the benefit of the community, and broadly speaking, for the purposes for which the community expects it to be used. It would be wrong for public officials to use governmental funds to buy private yachts or boats. But equally, it would be wrong for a government to spend the entire public budget on building roads and none of the budget on schools or hospitals or defence. If I decide, in accordance with the law, to give or not give money to charity, that is an exercise of the autonomy that society, through its law, allows me. But if a government decides to give or not give foreign aid, the resources that it has at its disposal are resources which have been given to it for particular purposes. So governments may have more power, but within the framework of moral and political duties, it seems to me that they have less freedom of choice than individuals. There's also a third frame of reference, the state. This is obvious to international lawyers who naturally think in terms of 
states rather than governments or individuals. Governments come and go, but states endure for very much longer. And this too complicates the moral position of governments, because it means that their freedom of action is further limited by the commitments that have been entered into in the name of the state by previous governments. For example, Poland is now a part of the European community, and a new Polish government, no matter how radically different from its predecessor, will not be free to disregard that fact or the obligations that flow from it. That's not to say that a new Polish government could not decide to negotiate withdrawal from the European Union, or even that it could not withdraw unilaterally. But it would not have the same freedom to do so as it would have, for example, to change Polish divorce laws. Similarly, states are bound by customary international law duties, such as the duty not to intervene in each other's internal affairs. In principle, each state, rather the people of each state, has the right to chart its own future, not to have it dictated by some other state. And this too is a constraint upon government. was, for example, a significant factor in the response of the international community to the situation in Kosovo. Now those instances may suggest that the term state uh, might almost be said to be a name for a particular set of constraints upon governance. But states are more than that. Their immortality and independence of governmental change creates the possibility of attaching to them long-term, the practically permanent rights and obligations. And so it extends the possibilities for creating a framework of moral rights and duties and citizenship. For instance, states that are co-riparians on an international river can be bound permanently to share the waters of the river even if particular arrangements between their respective governments might terminate uh, or lapse. This possibility of attaching long-term rights and duties to states is further enhanced by the nature of international law. I said treaties expired or may be denounced, but customary law goes on and on until it's changed by the gradual processes of state practice. And so duties such as those of good neighbourliness, which arise in custody international law, have a persistence that suits them to the task of establishing practically permanent foundations for relations between states. There are then important differences, it seems to me, between the positions of states, governments and individuals as moral actors. And there are also differences in parallel between them as bodies to whom duties are owed. One might, for example, focus on individuals and take the cosmopolitan view of rights according to which the welfare of every human being is equally important, so that the suffering of individuals in another state demands a response every bit as much as does the suffering of individuals at home. Alternatively, one might focus on governments. 
We might say that the notion of sovereign equality in states and the duty of each state not to interfere in the internal affairs of the other requires us not to look at the plight of individual citizens of other states, but rather to listen to what their governments have to say. If the foreign government asks for help, it could or should be given. If it does not ask for help, we should not undermine the government by enforcing the help of God. Well, that approach would in practice preclude action to assist the victims of all repressive governments who would not ask for outside intervention to assist their victims. And here the third focus might help, that on the state. We might detach the basis of intervention from the rights of the government and attach it instead to the rights of the state. For example, we might say that whatever the government of the target state might say, there is always a right to enter a state to provide it with purely humanitarian assistance, blankets, medicine, and so on. And there is always a right to intervene to present genocide or large-scale murder or ethnic cleansing. But that otherwise there is to be no intervention without the consent of the incumbent government. Of that uh, view, what is decisive is not the wishes or needs of individuals or governments, but rather the scope of the rights of the state. Well, the choice between these focuses is, of course, not absolute. Focuses can and do coexist. Individuals may give money for foreign aid whether or not their government has a right or a duty to do so. My point is not that one or other focus is correct, but rather that any answer to the question, can a state say, we owe the world nothing, must somehow accommodate all of these focuses, because all of these bodies, individuals, governments, and states, are in fact acting concurrently on the international plane. Let me turn now to my second set of distinctions, that between different kinds of rights and duties. Citizenship is a status that exists within the context of the law, and also within the context of moral and political philosophy. The rights and duties of citizenship are initially moral in nature. Their nomination and articulation is the preserve of the moral or political philosopher. The law may embody those rights and duties, but their initial conception is always extra-legal. For the moral rights and duties may in theory correspond in all particulars with the law, but in practice it's almost inevitable that they will not. The law may impose obligations that are not required by any conception of citizens' rights and duties. A legal obligation to vote, such as exists in Australia and Singapore, for example. Conversely, the law may impose no legal duty to act in a manner that is morally required of us. Assisting members of one's family or one's neighbours would be widely accepted as examples of that. So as those examples show, the role of the law is not to mirror morality precisely. But equally, it should not seriously obstruct it. If one assumes that laws should not be imposed arbitrarily by a government, but should in some sense be the expression of a will of the society to which they're applied, 
it follows that the law should at least make possible. That is to say, the law should not positively forbid morally necessary actions or positively require immoral actions. Of course, there may be deep disagreement over what morality requires. Debates over slavery, discrimination, abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment demonstrate that. But once the view is settled, if only by the decision of a government with the legitimate claim to the authority to take such decisions, the role of the law is clear enough. But that still leaves us with a very great deal of freedom for individuals who may choose whether or not to do anything that is neither required nor prohibited by the law. Acts of charity or of mean-spiritedness belong in this area. Indeed, we might say that one of the roles of the law is to define that area of individual freedom to make moral decisions. Legal rules define the space within which moral rules are allowed to operate. Well, the definition of this field is not simply a matter of the state itself through its legislature and its courts drawing the line. The process is altogether more subtle. Some lines are indeed drawn by the state itself, the duty to pay taxes and the duty not to murder, for example. But much else is laid down by the myriad agreements expressed and implied that result from the daily interactions between human beings. Some of those agreements are backed by the state. Contracts are enforceable through the courts. Members of corporations and other associations have basic obligations and are given basic protections by the law. Other agreements are not. Social and family commitments are said in language of lawyers not to be intended to create legal relations, although intention often has little or nothing to do with the decisions of the law as to what arrangements to enforce and what not to. Nonetheless, all of these arrangements circumscribe the area of individual freedom. And there is a further point to note here. Legal obligations are by no means always actually enforced, nor are they intended to be. Any legal system would quickly grind to a halt in every instance of illegal parking or speeding, and every petty theft or assault were prosecuted through the courts. In every society, the level of enforcement balances the need to maintain the credibility of the law with the need for economy in the use of scarce public resources on law enforcement rather than on, for example, health care or pensions or defence. It is necessary that there should be a certain minimum level of compliance, whether voluntary or coerced, in order that the system of rights and duties remain credible. Rights to participate in elections and in government, to social security benefits, to individual liberties and so on, must be realized in some measure in practice if the community is to be regarded as one within which the notion of citizens' rights and duties has any real meaning. So there must be a minimal level of law and order and law enforcement, but total compliance is neither expected nor required. 
But in the case of duties that are imposed by contract or by tort, there is not even an expectation in principle that any enforcement action will be taken by an injured individual. It is a matter of choice whether to overlook the violation of the obligation or to pursue the matter through the courts or to pursue it through some other social mechanism, for example, by publicizing the breach or ostracizing the violator. And that difference seems to me to be important. We would think that the legal system had failed fundamentally if violations of the law on theft were never prosecuted. That we might think it unremarkable if no one chose to litigate over breaches of contract. Putting that point in another way, we can say that it is the community's interest in the enforcement of the duties that fall within the ambit of the criminal law that marks them out for enforcement through the legal system and requires their enforcement. While it leaves other matters for individual complainants to pursue through the courts. So, I think there are three levels of obligations we distinguish. Within the typical state, duty is defined by the criminal law and by regulatory and other public laws that oblige citizens to act in a certain way. Secondly, those core duties are supplemented by other duties that a state chooses to back, enforceable contracts and duties not to defame or assault or injure people through negligence imposed by tort law. And third, the level of purely moral obligation not backed by law at all. And it's the balance between those three levels of obligation as they attach to individuals, governments and states that produces the particular characteristics of the public order of a given community. And my basic point this afternoon is that we cannot analyse citizenship as if all of the possible rights and duties that may attach to the status of citizenship are of the same order. What then do the laws of a community tell us about the conception of citizenship that prevails in that community? Well, first, they define the people to whom the duties are owed. And that definition may differ from one duty to another. For example, in the case of Donahue and Stevenson, a decision that underlies much of the development of the modern law of negligence, the court said that duties are owed to, quote, all persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I'm directing my mind to the acts or omissions which are called in question. That noble principle that individuals must act with reasonable care towards their neighbours gives rise to, gives way to an altogether less philanthropic approach to the duties of the state towards those who fall under its control. Decisions of the courts in the United States in cases such as Alvarez and Kay and in the United Kingdom in the recent cases of anti-terrorism legislation suggest that basic rights may be denied to foreigners at least when they're outside the jurisdiction and illustrate the different conceptions of the range of the duties that are owed. Second, the laws tell us what the core content of citizens' rights and duties is, the basic nature of their obligations towards one another. 
For example, in those Western states, in the world of upper class new decalogue, thou shalt not kill, but needs not strive officiously to keep alive. As a matter of law, we are forbidden to kill people, or to cause them any significant hurt. But we are entirely free to leave them to drown, or to starve, or to be bludgeoned to death by other people. Our duties towards them are negative duties, duties not to harm, positive duties to do things for others, at least to those who are not dependent upon us. And to the extent that they are backed by the law at all, are essentially the preserve of the state of its agencies. It's the state that delivers basic education, health care, pensions, and social security. And in return, the citizen is obliged simply to pay to obey. Third, the rules that uh, the legal system contains will determine who may enforce the law against whom. And they tell us something about the structure of obligations within the community. Some obligations are enforced by the police or regulatory authorities in the community interest. Others, as said, are left to the discretion of individuals and yet others may be wholly unenforceable. No one can, for example, go to law to compel a state or a government or a corporation or an individual to give foreign aid to another state or to forgive a debt owed by another country. It's by drawing inferences uh, from patterns such as these that we can begin to see the particular architecture of citizenship in a given community. Well, at this point I should turn finally to consider what international law tells us about the current condition of global citizenship. International law, as it exists at present, distinguishes between the rights and duties that attach to individuals, governments, and states. There are relatively few rights and duties that international law attaches directly to individuals. There's a handful of international crimes for which individuals can be prosecuted and punished. And these include not only the war crimes that are punishable under international law because of their enormity, which have been applied by the Nuremberg, Yugoslav, and Rwanda tribunals, for example, but also piracy. And in some ways, piracy is a clearer example. Pirates were regarded as the common enemies of the human race rather than simply as enemies of a particular community. And as such, it was not for each community to decide whether or not to proscribe them and prosecute them. They were universally outlawed because their acts were, though perhaps not particularly barbarous, universally threatening and not easily repressed because they were often operating beyond the reach of the law enforcement agencies of any particular state. And it is that logic rather than the simple fact of the barbarity, barbarity of actions, that seems to me to drive the establishment of all crimes tribunals today. International crimes apart, individual men and women have practically no duties under general international law. We are all free to allow the people of Sudan to be murdered by genocidal thugs or to starve to death. We are free to fix prices for pharmaceuticals at levels which the majority of people in the world whose diseases could be cured by them cannot afford. As 
far as individual rights go in many parts of the world, including the Americas, Europe, Africa, individuals have been given rights under treaties, concluded by states, allowing them to enforce their elementary human rights. The range of those rights is broad and increasing. It covers civil, political rights, and economic, social, and cultural rights. And in many cases, states have agreed to allow individuals to petition international tribunals in order to vindicate those rights. But they are all rights as against states and governments within whose jurisdiction the individuals find themselves. They are not rights as against other individuals. In that sense, international human rights are located within the domestic sphere. The rights do not impose corresponding duties upon states and governments in respect of people outside the jurisdiction of the state. Indeed, there is still debate as to how far human rights obligations better the actions of states uh, outside their own territories. Are British soldiers bound by the European Convention on Human Rights when they are in Iraq, for example? Well, however that question is resolved, uh, I think there's much to be said for regarding human rights obligations as absolute limitations on what state officials can do, whether they do it inside their own country or elsewhere. There is certainly no suggestion that the obligations extend any more by the internet. No one suggests that someone in Zimbabwe or Myanmar or, for that matter, in Guantanamo can call upon a European state party to the European Convention on Human Rights to vindicate his or her rights to a fair trial. <coughs> War crimes apart, then, international law gives little indication that duties are imposed on individuals in respect of people in other states. The picture is very different in relation to their voluntary commitments, however. Individuals are, of course, free to make their own decisions within the area of their individual moral autonomy. But even contracts and tortious liabilities arising from dealings with foreigners are ordinarily enforced by the law, subject only to the requirement that enforcement must not offend against the public policy of the state in which enforcement occurs. For example, in most states, contracts for prostitution or for sale of illegal narcotics would not be well, turning to the position of states, the position is different. International law imposes clear duties upon them. A catalogue of the most basic among them is found in the 1970 Declaration on Principles of International Law concerning friendly relations and cooperation among states. And many of them take the form of restraints on action rather than duties to act. States are bound not to threaten or use force against one another not to intervene in each other's internal affairs, and so on. And those negative customary law duties preserve the division of the globe into the discrete political communities that are states. The positive duties upon states are largely created by their own voluntary commitments, usually in the form of treaties. Focus on the international equivalent of tort law, which is supplied by the law on state responsibility, now restated in the 2001 Articles on State Responsibility prepared by the International Law Commission, as they give what seems to me to be an interesting insight into the prevailing conception of duties on the global plane. 
Those articles are based on the premise that international responsibility is in principle to be enforced by a state injured as a result of a breach of international law and against the state which can be identified as responsible for that breach. There was a proposal to create a category of serious breaches of important international obligations which would have been called international crimes of states which would have paralleled the international the national criminal law but that proposal was defeated and not taken up and so the whole of the current framework rests upon an essentially bilateral conception of the nature of state responsibility it is necessary to identify a specific wrongdoer and a specific victim in order that responsibility attach. It would, for example, be very difficult for a state that has been severely injured by industrial pollution emanating from all of the industrial states of Europe to recover compensation from any one of them because of the difficulty of tying the injury to the acts of any one polluting state. Similarly, a state that is responsible for polluting the high seas may escape its responsibilities because no other state can show that it has been injured by that pollution. Well, there are exceptions to this bilateral approach to responsibility. Cases in which states have standing to invoke the responsibility of other states for breaches of international law, even though the invoking state has not been directly harmed by the breach. This is the position in relation to the narrow band of what are known as collective interests of states. And rules in regional environmental, security, and human rights treaties are examples of these. These are rules set up to create something close to true community obligations, duties of citizenship owed to all states within the community. And in respect of that class of rules, any state, injured or not, may enforce the obligation. Another development which moves in the direction of an expanded notion of state responsibilities to the community as a whole is the recognition that states may be responsible not only for the wrongs that they themselves commit, but also for aiding or assisting other states to violate international law. The responsibility of a state which, for example, provides the finance or the arms or the air bases for unlawful attacks on another state is clearly established under the IRC article. And there, it is not their complicity in the attack on the other state that is the subject of their responsibility. It is the very fact of them aiding or assisting the wrongdoing state. Not all developments are so positive. Under the IRC articles, there is a defense which allows states to exonerate themselves if the particular act was necessary to save the lives of people entrusted to the care of the person acting. For example, where the pilot of an aircraft violates the state's airspace in order to bring the damaged aircraft to safety. But that depends upon a pre-existent relationship of the people who are saved being already entrusted to the care of the actor. They could not allow a defense for, for example, an army unit from state A which crossed into state B uninvited to rescue villages in state B from a forest fire or a mudslide. 
saving your own people counts, saving strangers does not. And that is a good example of the kind of insight that the laws can give into the structure of social responsibility that are perceived to exist on the international plane. Before closing, I should say that, that in fact the major exceptions to this bilateral conception of responsibility lie outside the realm of state responsibility. It's through monitoring and reporting mechanisms established under regimes such as the World Trade Organization, International Labour Organization, and so on, and through the work of NGOs uh, that much is done to bring states into compliance with their international duties. Bilateral enforcement is much the minor part of it. Equally, there is a great deal of internal self-imposed monitoring, the way that uh, pressure for compliance comes from the conditionality requirements which are now commonly attached to government lending and to other forms of assistance from state agencies and international organizations. I haven't mentioned governments, and for the most part, governments are only relevant in international law is the agency through which states act, whose conduct must therefore be considered in discussions in the context of the duties of states. The main exception to this pattern is that international law does have special provisions in relation to fundamental changes of governments. In the case of decolonization, for example, governments have been permitted to renounce obligations incurred in the name of the state by the previous colonial power. But the focus of governments is very much that on states in general, uh, and for the most part they follow those obligations. Well, this piece survey has been very complete, and I want to draw it to a halt to move on to the discussion. But I hope it's at least illustrated some of the problems that surround attempts to apply the concepts of rights and duties of citizenship on the international plane. And it may finally be helpful for me to draw together some of the main threads which indicate the nature of the support that international law can provide for a developing conception of citizenship on the international plane. First, there are a number of different focuses that we might adopt on states, on governments, or on individuals. And each of them has a separate set of moral constraints. Each of them can anchor the different set of rights and duties. Second, international law largely focuses on the rights and duties of states exercised by governments. And those rights and duties, for the most part, serve the purpose of preserving the independence of states from outside interference. There is little in the way of positive duties under customary international law, although there is much in the way of duties that have been freely assumed by states when they've ratified treaties. Third, the enforcement of obligations in the international plane is largely in the hands of individual states whose rights have been violated. While international law has mechanisms for allowing non-injured states to enforce obligations against the wrongdoing state, those are rudimentary and inadequate to support any substantial development of the notion of duties towards the community as a whole. That position could be changed by treaty, but at present the hope uh, is more realistically vested in the work of enhancing compliance with legal obligations through monitoring and through the mechanisms of conditionality than it is otherwise. So the emerging model of citizenship on the international 
national play and is essentially a decentralized, privatized law in which the duties of members of the international community are likely to be created and enforced in much the way that non-criminal obligations, contracts and the like, are enforced within municipal systems. My initial question was, can a state ever properly say we owe the rest of the world nothing? Personally, I cannot accept that a state can say that. But I think that there is still a very great deal of work to be done before a coherent explanation of the nature and the scope of the rights and obligations that exist across international borders can be given. Thank you very much.
so that if states came to be bound by some different set of rules somehow, they would simply change our notion of what the law was. Or how about you some of your point? Well, it, it does already, and the, it's this great myth that international law is only the concern of states, and it, it, it is not, and never has been. Right back in the early modern period, just to say that period, people were concluding agreements with uh, groups which were of the states, and treating them in exactly the same way that they treated agreements with the states. So it's always had a sort of transnational character, and much of international law has always been enforced through national courts, and to that extent has been internalized within the system, or through its adoption within the practices of particular groups. So I don't think it's, it's not right to think of international law as something that operates somehow above the heads of the individual. Uh, the only difference that I could imagine that the kind of thinking about would be an increase in the access of individuals to what I call the plane of international law and enabling them to take actions directly against states. But that's already happening in such a wide range of areas. Um, human rights are one obvious example, but um, the whole set of relations between host states and investors uh, are now essentially privatized, and the litigation is in the hands of private companies taking on states as juridical equals and the provisions under environmental treaties which give individual rights access. So I think this, this process is happening, and um, probably happening to the level where uh, international law is regarded as being as much a tool available to individuals in some cases to help them. Uh, Thank you. 
So its actual practical capability for deploying resources on the ground is extremely limited. Uh, and it's not obvious to me that the most efficient way of dealing with international problems would be to increase that. There is the choice, I suppose, to go through one of the three broad roots institutions, going down the UN route, global mechanism, going through regional organizations, and going through uh, individual state action. And at the moment, the impact seems to be, many governments seem to be the area of regional movements, and in West Africa, Europe, and various other places. And I think that's probably right. You can construct a principal government support on the basis of a special concern for people to their neighbours. You can construct a practical argument for in terms of knowledge of the area and the availability of resources that are suited to the area. Um, European armies are generally ill-equipped, for example, to have the kind of conditions that there are in West Africa. West Africa. But I think the more fundamental point is I, I just don't see the imagination as being that kind of organization. It's a place where states gather to discuss how best to solve problems. It's not a case, it's not an organization which is necessarily set up to solve those problems itself. And in many circumstances, I think to send the resolution of the matter out is the right thing to do. Thank uh-huh. 